Well, it is a joy to come to the Word again this morning. We're coming to the end of this book. Charles asked me this week, how many more weeks do you think? And I almost didn't want to answer. I, uh, I have been enriched a great deal by the study of this book, and I trust it's been an encouragement to you. Uh, the Word of God is rich and a treasure beyond compare. We've been seeking to answer this question, how do we realize the peace of God in our lives? Or you could put it this way, how do we remain at rest in a restless world? Now we are not trying to answer that question from a selfish vantage point as though I'm just kind of up here for self-help. Somehow we want the experience of peace. Somehow we wish to be at rest. And all the world seeks for those things, of course. But really we come to this because it is the will of God for his people that we be at rest in this restless world. That we, that we know him and that we know the peace that he purchased for us through the blood of his son. Jesus died that we might have peace with God. And he established that peace by dying in our place. God's wrath was satisfied by the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son of God so that God now is at peace with us and we are no longer at enmity with him. But we have been reconciled in full and forever and that objective peace that was purchased by Christ was accomplished not only to get you to heaven, but it was accomplished that you might have relationship with the God who created you through the blood of his son. And that the peace that he established as he reconciled you to himself might not just be a thing of head knowledge, but it might actually be experienced in the life. Because we have peace with God, we can now experience the peace of God. And God wants his people, he wants you to know that peace. He wants you to live established in his rest, settled and secure in him. To put it negatively, God does not want his people to be fearful and anxious and insecure and unstable. Now, just saying that word reminds me of something I've been meaning to say to you actually for a couple of weeks, and that is that Pastor John MacArthur preached a sermon series on this text in Philippians 4 entitled, Seven Steps to Spiritual Stability. It was one of the earliest series I heard from John and it really was transformative in my own life. And I have been sitting on that announcement because, well, I really didn't want you to listen to him while you were listening to me. <laughs> I didn't want to lead you to that place of discontent where you said, Lord, why did they get him and we got him? What, <laughs> I couldn't have you thinking and tempted to move to Southern California. But now as we're wrapping up this series, I could not more heartily recommend 
that you go to his series on this, you will find yourself strengthened and stabilized. I have recommended that series to many people uh, in counseling. I haven't even allowed myself to listen to it as I've been preaching through this for fear that I'd be too tempted to take everything that he said and say it to you. I will leave it to him to say those things and you can go there to gty.org and find the sermon vault or whatever they call that thing. What is it, Charles? Uh, you don't remember. <laughs> anyway, these things that we've been talking about, if, if you are new here or you haven't been here, I would really encourage you to go back and, and look at the last, this, this I think amounts to the fourth or fifth message in this series. And uh, it is the fourth message. And uh, these things are so foundational to knowing uh, the joy and the peace that God intends us to enjoy in this life. He really does. Now, many in the church today tend to think of the Christian faith as something that is fundamentally experiential. And I will say this, that Christianity, the Christian faith, is in fact experiential. It is that, but it is not only that. That joy and the wonder of the experience of the indwelling spirit and all the delight and gladness that we know from knowing Christ and knowing our God, all of that is true. There is a relationship with the living Lord. It is also, though, a doctrinal faith. And it is that truth that enables us to judge really our experience as true or false. It is that truth that we know doctrinally that teaches us about God. It is God's revelation of himself to us. You dare not come to the Christian faith as something that is merely experiential. That experience is governed and judged by doctrine. And we are enriched in our experience, the true experience of the Christian faith, through the knowledge of the truth. But it is not merely experiential, nor is it merely doctrinal. It's also fundamentally practical. And that is what we come to this morning, that the faith is something that we not only experience, we not only know, but it is something that we live. It's born out in fruit in the Christian life. The gospel calls us to obedience, first in the arena of the mind and heart, and then into action. And so it takes hold of the whole man. It takes hold of your heart. It takes hold of your thinking. It takes hold of your doing. Jesus did not come, as I'm fond of saying, to be part of your life. He came to be your life. Faith without works, says James, is dead. It is a stillborn faith. It is a fake faith. And mere words are just that, words. Turn to Matthew chapter 7 before we go to the book of Philippians this morning. And I want to remind you of a very familiar passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll pick up in verse 24.
Jesus has just warned his audience that there were many who would come to him on that day, on judgment day, and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? And didn't we do that? And didn't I live quite the life? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you whose pattern of life is one of persistent disobedience, lawlessness. Now, please hear this clearly. Nothing will be said today that should leave you leaving here thinking that somehow good works will justify you with God. That's an error. That's false. We are not saved by works, but by faith and by grace alone. However, everything that I've already said about the reality and the necessity of working out that living faith is true. And Jesus here wants people to understand that clearly. And so we read, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, note that, acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. By way of contrast, he says in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. We have two builders, two houses, two foundations and one storm. One of those houses at the end of the storm is standing firm upon a rock that is solid. The other is a heap of ruins sitting on the sand on which it was built. And Jesus gave us this parable that we might understand that true believers hear the word of God. There are many who hear the word of God. The true believer hears the word of God, but it does not stop with the hearing. It does not stop with the ear. It does not stop with the lesson. It does not stop with the sermon. There is a sense in which the true believer engages what is taught by faith, believes it, trusts in it, leans upon it, and then does it, obeys it, follows it out in practical living. James said that the true Christian is one who is a doer of the word and not merely a hearer who deceives himself. So this matter of obedience, brothers and sisters, is a very critical matter. This is not a message about legalism. This is not a message about works as a means to salvation. But of works as a necessary fruit of genuine salvation. We are saved, as the reformers said, by grace alone. But the grace that saves is never alone. 
It's always accompanied by works. Ephesians 2.10 would teach us that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 2.12 tells us that we were saved unto good works. Earnest doing is always the proof of genuine believing. And this is the problem, wasn't it, with the Pharisees? One of the problems, anyway. They had a head full of knowledge, but they never had a converted heart. What they knew was used by them to maintain their status and position in society. It was used by them to oppress everybody else. They loved to tie up heavy burdens for others to carry, but they would not lift them with so much as a finger. They would not take up the very truth that they knew. And Jesus, in Matthew, says to them eight times in the same message, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you're play actors, you're toying with the things of God. This was the same problem with the Jews that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 2, if you want to go there on our way to Philippians. Romans chapter 2 and verse 17 Paul says, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and you boast in God and you know his will and you're one who approves of the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, you get the picture. Here's a Jew looking to the law, looking to his his ethnicity and saying to, to himself, no, we are the people of God. We are the ones who are entrusted with the law. We are the ones who know the word. We are the ones who have been instructed and therefore we are the ones who in, instruct others. Look at verse 19. You're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. All of that is very loaded language from the Older Testament. He says, you think of yourselves as a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of of knowledge and of the truth. Now Paul drives it home with a pointed finger. He says, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. You see what Paul is saying? Oh, you're a religious person. You're called by the right name and you've come to the right book and you're aware of all those things. You grew up in Christian school. You, you got a handle on all this stuff, but you haven't heard the word for what it is saying. 
You haven't obeyed it. You haven't come to the truth. You haven't come, and, and in this passage, he's saying, look, you have not come to the point yet of understanding as you should because the very word that you profess to know and to teach and to instruct others in should have led you already to the point of understanding that you're a sinner, that you're in need, that you're broken and flat on your face before the law of God. You're not a doer of it. You're a transgressor of it. You're one who's in need of a savior. See, James tells us, chapter one, verse 25, that the word of God is like a mirror. And so many look into that mirror and then walk away and immediately forget what they've heard. He says, but there's another crowd of people. There's, there's one who looks intently into that mirror of the perfect law, the law of liberty, and they abide by it. Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. So our deeds demonstrate the reality of the inner life. And Paul is going to call the Philippians not only to godly thinking, which was the last time we were together in this book, but to godly practice. Let's go over to Philippians, a couple more books to the right, and chapter four. Let's see if we can't tie all this together today as we come to the end of this series and we near the end of this letter. If we were to summarize all the things that we have been talking about since we started a number of weeks ago in, in chapter four and verse four, we might say that rest is the result of godly attitudes, godly thinking, and godly conduct. Godly attitudes, he talked about those in chapter four and verse four and five when he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. What's he saying? Well, our disposition in this life, our posture as believers our inner attitudes that govern our outlook on life. Those attitudes should, should be joyful, rejoicing in the Lord. Though your circumstances are not worthy of rejoicing in, the Lord is always worthy of rejoicing in all that he is and all that he has done. And that we should manifest in our lives a, what we call a peaceable kind, kindness. There is a sense in which you live in this world, not for yourself, but for others. And you come into situations as a, as a peacemaker. You come into situations to extend kindness, not necessarily to receive it. In fact, when you don't get it in turn, that peaceable kindness continues to go out towards others. You are somebody who lives to reconcile and to bring peace into human relationships. There's an attitude of faith that understands, as Paul said it, that the Lord is near. His coming is near and he is personally near to us. He is what we need. He is in whom we hope. 
So we have godly attitudes, but also godly thoughts. There is in the Christian a very disciplined mind. We don't just go anywhere and everywhere that our minds want to go. We say stop. We've set a parameter around the field in which our minds graze. We stay within these divinely established parameters. What are those parameters? Well, Paul says, look, you need to set your mind on the things that are true, those things that accord with reality. You need to set your mind on the truth of the word of God, on scripture. Those things which are honorable. Remember that word meant dignified. Those things that carry weight and are worthy of respect. You need to think on those things, he says, which are right. That's the idea of righteousness. Those things that are upright and holy and altogether righteous, according to God's righteousness. Those things which are pure, They're without blemish. They're without moral stain. They're not worldly. You need to set our minds on the things that are lovely, ethically beautiful, and morally attractive. Those things that are of good repute. They've got a reputation for being good. They're commendable and praiseworthy. And you'll remember that we talked about the reality that this is, this is something that even universally men consider as noble. Things like courage and faithfulness and sacrifice, honesty and integrity and wisdom and mercy and compassion. These are the things that every man in every culture understands to be of good reputation. And then Paul added, if there's sort of these broad sweeping statements, if there was anything that was excellent or anything worthy of praise, these big catch-all concepts, whatever is excellent and whatever is worthy of praise, and I don't know how it's been for you the last couple of weeks, but I've been working and I notice how often my mind tends to go far afield and I have to say, stop, and I need to come back And it's amazing. It's amazing how it rescues you from anxiety. How it delivers you from fear. How it pushes back against temptation. Brothers and sisters, this is is biblical gold right here. You need to know these terms. You should memorize this passage. We've been working at it. And then Paul says, and this is the topic that we'll look at today, that on top of godly attitudes and godly thinking, there needs to be in our lives godly conduct. This is the way that we see the peace of God realized in our lives. Now, at some level, without even going any further in the text, this should make sense to you if you've had children, if you grew up in a home, which I assume most of you did. When there is rebellion, which inevitably is personal, right? It breaks relationship. It tries greatly (laughs) the cohesiveness of a home, doesn't it? If there is not obedience in the home and a willing submission on the part of everyone toward one another, if we're not serving each other in that home, but we're seeking our own and pursuing our own path, you know that that tends to make the waters pretty rough sailing. And so even on just a 
a horizontal human level, we, we get the concept here that a life that is lived in obedience to God is going to give you an experience of the peace of God in your life that cannot be had otherwise. So we've been talking about these things in light of cultivating certain disciplines in our life. We talked about cultivating a life of constant rejoicing in Christ. We talked about cultivating a life of peaceable kindness. Cultivate a life of thankful prayer. Cultivate a life of godly thinking. And so in addition to all of these, we come now to this this final needful thing, and that is that we want to cultivate a life of godly practice. Father, let's, as we come to this word, Lord, we look to you and we, we ask you, again, to anchor these things in our hearts. Lord, don't let our minds drift and don't let us be thinking about the things of, of this life. Lord, you've said that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of your mouth. So in these climactic words of the Apostle Paul, by your spirit, we ask that you would instruct us in the way that, Lord, we might know a greater experience of your peace and that we might walk with you more intimately. That's our heart's desire. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so having adopted godly attitudes, having disciplined our minds to think on the right things, Paul calls us to godly behavior, godly conduct, mere acquaintance with the truth is nothing if it does not lead to action. Verse nine. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We're going to approach this text today according to three lines of thought. The call to godly practice, the content of godly practice, and the consequence from godly practice. We'll go through those again. You don't need to get them all now if you're taking notes. The call to godly practice. Very simple, very brief. Here's what we are being directed to do. Paul writes, practice these things. Now, I like the old King James version of this. <laughs> the King James says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. Sometimes an abrupt do it is really helpful for us. We hear practice and it sounds soft and smushy and like possibility thinking. He is not talking about things that you might be interested in doing if you want a greater experience of peace in the Christian life. He is calling us, even though practice is the better translation, I believe that, because the verb tense tells us that you are to do it and you are to continue to do it. This is another imperative in this letter. And it's a present commandment. And he, he is saying, look, practice these things consistently. Do them and keep doing them. And so 
Just as he said with our thinking that we must consistently think in a godly fashion, here we are to pattern our lives after godliness and to do that, yes, on Sunday afternoon, but also Monday morning and through the rest of the week and for the rest of your life. This is the pattern that we are to maintain. We are to maintain a habitual holiness of life. That's what Paul has in view. Now, I told you it would be brief. What are these things that we are called to practice? What is the content, secondly, of godly practice? Look back at the verse. Paul says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Now, I think these things can be separated into two distinct categories. When, when Paul writes that you ought to think on those things or you ought to do those things that you learned and received from me, he's talking about verbal instruction. You've learned them, you've received them. That's, that's instruction. That's receiving the truth of biblical teaching. And when he says those things that you heard and saw in me, he's talking about his personal example, the things they learn by watching him. One has to do with the ear, the other has to do with the eye. And this is not, beloved, pride on Paul's part. Paul did not teach the things which were his own. He taught what he had received from the Lord. And Paul did not live a life that was his own. He lived a life that was patterned after the Lord. And therefore he says what? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So this isn't Paul commending himself. He was well aware of his shortcomings. You remember if you want to look back at chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. He knows. He knows he's still lacking in maturity. He's still growing into what God wants him to be and called him to be in Christ Jesus. He says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I reach, on, I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knew full, fully, he was fully aware of his own frailties, his own weakness. And he was a humble servant of the Lord and of the church. And all that he taught and the whole of his life was given so that he might represent the Lord in his preaching and in his life example so that others might be able to put their footsteps firmly in his knowing that he himself was following Christ. And so as we come to this, this isn't merely about your own personal experience of peace, though it is certainly about that. But what Paul is saying here about himself, brother and sister, listen, mom, dad, grandpa, grandma, older brother for younger sister, 
This is a call that goes out really by, again, by way of Paul's example, this is a call and aspiration that goes to every believer. We all ought to be able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, what are we to make our continual practice? Well, he begins in verse nine by saying the things you've learned and received. Again, this is his verbal instruction. Paul's thinking about all that he had told them by way of apostolic instruction, He had explained the Bible. He had handed down and taught them in sound doctrine. Paul had been with the Philippians. He had preached in their presence. In fact, their church was founded by him. And undoubtedly, you know this from other passages of Scripture, that Paul was not a lazy man when it came to preaching and teaching. He was not a lazy man at all. He labored day and night. He went from house to house. He was always seeking to instruct them in everything that would be profitable that they might grow in the truth. And Paul says here, these things that you have learned and by implication from him. There were also times that Paul was not with them And so he wrote to them, and the Bible you hold in your hands, the book we're looking at, is evidence of that. He's thinking of that body of knowledge again, the gospel, the faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. These things that he he spoke to them in their presence and he has written to them. I mean, you just think about, we're going to take a little brief tour here, but you think about all that we've learned in this book alone. And this is really skipping across the top. We've learned that there is hope for future perfection by the grace of God that what he started in us, he will in fact, he has taken it upon himself to complete it. That's good news. He's taught us the importance of living in love and walking in holiness. He taught us about the primacy of gospel proclamation. He taught us the vital necessity of unity in Christ and how to pursue it, that we were to maintain the same mind and the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He taught us in that magnificent beginning of chapter two where he called us to Christ-like humility that we were to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And then you'll remember he draws upon Christ in that passage that's too deep for any diver to ever be able to get to the bottom about about Christ, fully God and fully man who sacrificed and humbled himself coming in the form of a bondservant to give himself for his people and then to be raised to heights unknown. He instructed them about their responsibility to make progress in practical sanctification. You remember he told us to what? Work out what God was working in us. He told them that they were to knock off the grumbling and the disputing. He told them that they were set in this world as bright lights among a dark and perverse generation of people. He told them to hold fast to the word of life. He told them to beware of false teachers, whether they come in the form of of legalists who want to take you back to Mosaic rites and rituals, or they come in the form of of licentious antinomians who would take you uh, into the grace of God in a corrupt way and say, it doesn't matter how you live your life. You've been saved, Jesus forgives it, party on. 
He told them that they ought not to rest on their spiritual laurels, but they should seek instead the righteousness that is found not in their own works, but in Christ himself. He reminded them that their citizenship was in heaven, not here, and that there was a resurrection yet to come, and they ought to be reaching and striding and seeking that which is above. Told them to stand firm in these things and to put off godly con- ungodly conflict that threatens the unity of the church. He told them over and over, rejoice, 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 rejoice. Time and again, put on godly attitudes, put on godly thinking. And now he gives us this call to godly obedience. He had taught them a lot in four brief chapters. And he had taught them more than that. And Paul says, not only did you learn them, but you receive them. And that, that is such an important word. It's, it's code word that they, they took these things from Paul, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. It's used time and again, that word received in the New Testament for, for appropriating the word of God, for putting your trust in it. You remember what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 11, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received. 1 Thessalonians Paul says in chapter two and verse 13, this gives us the idea of it. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it for what it is, not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. There are a number of other passages we could go to. First Timothy, or First Thess 4, 1. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God that you may excel still more. So they had learned these things. They had received them. They took the milk, the pure and wholesome milk of the word of God and they drank it down so that it began to to. to neutrify them. Is that a word? I don't know. But it, it did that. It neutrified them. Adopted. It's a good word. Paul created words. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if I have the same license, but I'm doing it. See, they didn't just hear what he had to say. They, they took it to heart. And brothers and sisters, this underscores, again, the importance. I love thinking about the implications of things. But the implication here is, and I realize I'm preaching to the choir right now, but you need to be part of a good church. You need to be part of a a gospel-preaching, doctrinally rich, instructive church. A church that will teach you God's word so that you then can take these things and grow with respect to the faith. You can receive the word implanted. You can study it and meditate upon it and take it into your mind so that you might be transformed by it. Paul says, you, you, you take these things that you've learned from me and you take these things that you have received from me and remember the main verb here, what? Do them. Do them. 
Now listen, every time I get on the freeway, I'm astonished. I know what everyone has been taught. I took the same class in high school. I read the same manual they read. I had to pass the same test that you had to pass. And every driver out there had to pass. But there is very, really very little indication when you drive that very many people are actually doers <laughs> of that which they have learned. Last time I checked, the speed limit is 65. And, I, you know, and it is confusing on I-80 because there's that blue sign that says 80. And... <laughs> I got to thinking about that yesterday. You know, I, I was kind of wishing I lived in Southern California. You know, you could do 101 all the way to Ventura and all, actually all the way up the highway. As long as you don't get on Highway 1, that would be a problem. There's the 405. That's all the way down to San Diego. I don't even know what kind of car will do that speed, but you get the idea. I know that texting is forbidden when you drive, and yet I tell you uh, the motorcycle I ride sits up nice and high, and I can look in. I kid you not, it might be better than 50% of drivers are texting everywhere, everyone. And you go, yeah, those young people. No, it's old people too. They, they do. And when I drive in town, stop does not mean stop. And you can frankly just forget a four-way intersection. That is a mess if I've ever seen one. Nobody knows who has the right of way. And the fact is, a lot of these things are this way because they're only very occasionally enforced. There are an awful lot of people who approach the word of God this way, like it's a driver's handbook by which you get your license for heaven. But beyond that, there's really not much to it and you don't have to really think about it or follow it. I want to tell you, that that is not the way God sees the universe. We are called to be doers of the things we learn. We're called to apply those things in our lives. And any other approach to life is just building on sand. The things you have been taught, Paul says, practice these things. Now he goes on, verse 9. And, he says, the things that you have heard and seen in me. These have to do not so much with Paul's verbal example, but with his life example. One of the best teachers there is, is to see somebody actually live out something so that you can just do what they do. And Paul had a life that was one of genuine devotion and faithfulness. He was serious about the Christian faith. He knew his God and he knew the truth and he was seeking to live and burn the candle at both ends in his pursuit of the kingdom of God. They had seen Paul live this way in person before their eyes and they had heard about the way he lived from others who were around Paul when he was apart from them, men like Timothy and men from from the church like Epaphroditus who would bring back the report of how Paul was and what he was enduring and how he was enduring it. Paul was an imitator of Christ and so he calls them to imitate himself. And you remember back again in 
chapter uh, three and verse 17, Paul had already said this to them not too many minutes before this. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Paul understood. He wasn't the all in all of godliness. He understood that there were others who had been discipled and there were others who had grown in maturity and there were others who knew in the church who knew how to walk after truth and after the example of Christ. And so he called the church to look at people including himself, and say, you find the mature people in your church, you find the people whose teaching and whose example look like Jesus, and you get on their heels. He exemplified the very things that he calls them to live. What, what, what had they seen? What had they heard about him? Well, they certainly heard and saw him evangelize. They knew his burden for the lost, his burden for the elect, his burden to preach the gospel. Woe is me, Paul says, if I don't preach the gospel. They saw how determined he was, how often the gospel was on the tip of his tongue. Paul says, follow me. Be like that. And they certainly had seen how Paul stood, even to his, his own harm, uncompromisingly upon the truth. He was not going to bend the message for anybody, though lashings might come his way. And Paul says, hey, do that. They had heard him pray. Brothers, I keep encouraging you, Friday morning, six to seven, we're here, we miss you. Come, pray with us. They heard Paul's prayers, the glad lifting of praises, all of his thanksgiving, the intercession that he prayed. He tells them in the first chapter how he prayed for them. What a blessing that must have been. From Paul, they learned what discipleship looked like. They knew how the faith was to be lived out in consistency and submission to Christ and submission to one another. From Paul, they learned how to suffer hardship patiently. They learned how to live contentedly, no matter their circumstances. They learned from Paul by watching him how to view the passing things of life, how to maintain, even though you're imprisoned, even though you're sitting chained to a Roman guard, even though your life has essentially been whittled down to house arrest and you can't go do the things that you used to do when you walked freely and everywhere and you had your health. He, he had taught them, even in those circumstances, rejoice. And again, I will say rejoice. And he says, to brothers and sisters, to us now, do that. Be like me. Don't slump. Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, forever. You have everything in him. Your best days are yet coming. You have all the reason in the world for hope and for joy and for peace. And they had seen it. They'd seen it lived out in his life. They had seen from him how urgently and eagerly he looked forward to the coming of Christ, how that was the, the focal point of his entire existence. Paul says, live like that. Do not set your mind on the things of the world, but on the things that are above where Christ is seated. That's for you. 
and that's for me. Paul was a living, breathing example of the very virtues and precepts he had learned from Christ and passed on to them. These are the kinds of people that your deaconesses and your deacons ought to be. These are the kinds of people that the shepherds of this flock ought to be. And frankly, brother and sister, this, this is what you are called to be and to do for one another. Let us encourage one another as day gives way to day, right? To, to, to do here what Paul is calling us to do. So practice those things you've learned and received. Imitate those things you've seen and heard. And that brings us to the glorious promise. Thirdly, the glorious consequence from godly behavior. What is the consequence of a life that is marked by these things? Well, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That's a factual statement. Not a hypothetical, not a potentiality. Here is the promise. You put these things to practice in your life and you will know peace. Are you lacking peace today? I can tell you, if you will come to the Lord Jesus Christ and do the things that we're being directed to do in this text, you will know peace like you have never known it in your life. And brother and sister, if you are unsettled this morning, whatever it is that's troubling you, you can find the core of it somewhere in these four or five verses that we've been looking at, verses four through nine. That's an encouragement to you. Look back at verse seven. We were told that if we put off anxiousness in verse six, and instead would put on grateful prayer. We would let our requests be made known to God and praise him and give him thanks as we go through life. If we would put off anxiety and instead give ourselves to thankful prayer, Paul says, here's the promise again. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, you can't even imagine how peaceful a person can be in the midst of difficult circumstances. And Paul, again, spoke from experience. He said, these things will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is a supernatural peace that Jesus said was entirely unlike the tawdry and temporary peace that this world gives. It's supernatural, and it comes from God. And you remember in this text, Paul gives the imagery of a garrison of, of soldiers, Roman soldiers who, who are guarding the city of Philippi. So it is that here, as we cast our cares on God with gratitude in our hearts, the peace of God will come like that garrison of soldiers to protect your heart from anxiety. Now, don't miss this because it's just too good. Verse nine is not a repeat of the promise of verse seven. It's something additional. It's something greater. It's something more personal than the peace of God being given to you. Look at it again. 
He says, the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, you practice these things as your pattern of life and the God of peace will be with you. The promise here is not only that the peace of God will be with you, but that the God of peace himself will walk with you in communion and in fellowship. I love the way one commentator put it. He says, all who practice a life of godly obedience will know the present enjoyment of the nearness of God in their lives. Now I want you to go back with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Jesus said it in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's easy to read that and think that what he's saying is that by keeping commandments, you will demonstrate that you love me enough to warrant heaven. That is not what he's saying. What he is saying here is, if there is in you a converted, regenerate heart that is inclined to love God and his commandments, that all comes in the same package, the same download of salvation. If that exists in your heart, you will keep my commandments, not perfectly, but that'll be your heart's desire, that'll be your pursuit, and that, by and large, will be your practice. You're not merely going to be a hearer who deceives themselves. No, you'll be a doer. And it will demonstrate that there has been shed abroad in your heart a love for me. And then, no duh, he immediately goes to the speaking about the reality of the Spirit of God indwelling us. That's the only way we could ever become a lover of Christ is to have the Spirit of Christ within us, abiding with us. And then he comes down to verse 21. He says, he who has my commandments, you've listened to them, you know them, and keeps them, is the one who loves me. Again, that's just evidentiary. That's fruit. Obedience is fruit of love for Christ. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now negatively, well, we'll pick up positively again. Verse 23, Jesus just keeps repeating it as if to get it into his disciples' heads and maybe ours. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. What is that? That's the presence of the God of peace. Negatively, in the next verse, he who does not love me, see, that's the issue, does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. 
My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Brothers and sisters, can we take a sanctified sigh and realize Christ has us. You can rest. He wants you at peace. A scattered, fearful, anxious, running mind trying to solve everything, that does not honor the Lord. What honors him is when you say, you are sufficient, you have got this, you have everything taken care of, I can trust you fully for the forgiveness of my sins, for the circumstances of my present, for all that will come down the pike, I know that you will deliver me in the end, I know that you are working everything in my life together for good and for your glory. I am going to take a nap. (laughs) He has us. The God of peace dwells closely with those who pursue holiness. This God who is the source of holiness, he is peace. And he is the one who gives peace. He, he himself will be with you. And I, I just can't help but think how meaningful this must have been to the apostle Paul who knew what it was to suffer like few men have ever known what it was like to suffer. How often he had to sit there. How, how, how did he in that, in that prison after having the tar beat out of him? How, how was it that he was in the prison singing hymns late into the evening? Was he faking it? Was he trying to cheer himself? No, I really believe that's just where he was at. And it's not like it didn't hurt. And it's not like he didn't want to be in there. I mean, well, he didn't want to be in there. It's not like he wanted to be in there. And yet he knows that everything he's enduring, he's enduring for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of of Christ's church. And he understood this principle so well that if, if he would maintain right attitudes and godly thinking and faithful obedience, that God would be with him and bring his peace right alongside every time without fail. What a treasured reality that must have been for Paul. And frankly, studying this text, again, I told you it's, it's, it's been a treasure to me. I bumped into something this week I just had never really even noticed. And yep, I'll share it with you. Here we go. Paul was so grateful for this refuge, the God of peace, that it became for him really a repetitive prayer of benediction. I did not know this. I like you, you know, the pastor says, well, this is about the end of the book and, and, and like you turn off. You can just write these references down. Romans 15, 33. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace 
will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. That's a promise. Second Thessalonians chapter three and verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. When Paul came to the end of a letter and he wanted to summarize and come up with lasting words, and someone has well said that lasting words should what? Our last words should be lasting words. That's the way that goes. Last words should be lasting words. And Paul, when he comes to those last words of his letters, is mindful. He didn't write these things out of habit. He wasn't just saying, sincerely, Paul. He was writing down what he actually was meditating on by the Spirit of God. And what was it that he wanted to turn people to over and over and over and over and over again? Look, I know you're being persecuted. Look, I know things are difficult in a variety of ways. May the God of peace be with you. So good. Of all the attributes that Paul could have reflected upon, God of glory, the God of wisdom, the God of grace, the God of peace. Over and over again, the God of peace. Brothers and sisters, do you want the nearness of the God of peace in your life? Then you must be doers of the things that you have learned and you have received and you have seen and heard in the Apostle Paul who taught and walked after a pattern of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the great motivation to holy living. Charles said last week somewhere, as I was looking through my notes again this week, last week Charles said these words, you are most happy when you are most holy. And that is exactly right. We could in this context maybe put that same thought this way. You will be most at peace when you practice the things that you've learned. Peace and happiness are very, very connected ideas. And when you do what you have been taught and what you have seen, it is then that the God of peace will be with you and he is all you need. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Father, how encouraging these things are to our hearts. You are the God of peace. And Lord, we thank you that you have, by the blood of your son, made peace through his cross with sinners so that we might know what it is to be your sons and your daughters, to be reconciled to you, to be your children. But Lord, beyond that, you have not left us with the bare reality that we will have eternity forever 
as good and glorious as that is, Lord, you walk with us now and we enjoy eternal life now. And you are the God of peace who wants us to enjoy your rest having entered in, that we would know what it is to be at peace in this world. And again, that we might shine as lights. Help us to that end, Lord. Help us to to rejoice always. Help us that we might have that, that peaceable kindness about us. Help us to trust that you are near to us, enabling us and strengthening us. Help us, Lord, to put off anxiety. Help us to to come to you in prayer with gratitude in our hearts and to lift up our requests to you and to leave them at your throne. Lord, help us to, to think in godly fashion on those things that are true and honorable and right and pure, lovely and of good reputation, those things that are excellent, those things that are worthy of praise, those things for which we can give thanks. And Lord, help us. Help us to be doers of your word. Help us to be followers of our Lord Jesus Christ and those saints who have walked behind him for years. Teach us these things, Lord, that we might glorify you more by the rest and the peace that characterizes our lives. And we ask it in Christ's name and to his glory. Amen.